Well, we're in Acts 21. Paul arrives in Jerusalem. Now, so we've looked at, uh, here's a, get the map on the overview there. You see where he leaves at the top there. It leaves Antioch, that top line kind of at the right side of your screen. He makes his way across uh, modern Turkey, Asia Minor. Um, He's planted some churches there called the Galatian churches. Uh, When he gets to the edge in Ephesus, this is his third journey. Uh, So he had been there twice before. He makes his way across the Aegean Sea into the churches of Macedonia. Those would be Philippi, Thessalonica, Berea. Makes his way down into Greece, uh, Cancrea, uh, to the church in Corinth. Stays there a few, uh, a little while. I think it's three months. Then he goes back up to the north, uh, where he can set sail back from the from Macedonia. Why did he do that? Why didn't he just set sail from Corinth all the way across into to Jerusalem where he was going? Do you remember? Well, he got word that they were going to ambush him and kill him, so he decided to go another route. He wanted to get. From, uh, from the area there in Corinth, he wanted to come down and make it to Jerusalem by Passover. That's important. Passover. I thought Passover was gone. I thought Jesus was our Passover. Why would Paul want to go celebrate Passover? Why are the Jews still having Passover? Well, Passover's not gone. The law is still there. And Paul is still abiding by the law. Now he's trying to get to Pentecost. Pentecost is 50 days after Passover. He couldn't make it to Passover in time. We don't know if he makes it, but he's trying to get there because he says so. So he goes up back to the churches in, in uh, Macedonia, sets sail back over into the, to Troas there in the western shore of Asia Minor. Uh, Acts chapter 19, chapters 19 and 20. In chapter 20, remember he's preaching all night and the young man falls out the window. Uh, that's part of this context. And from there, he's going to make his way into a farewell tour down into Ephesus. And you can see the squiggly line down there at the bottom of, of Asia Minor where he goes uh, island to island. And he says goodbye to the people in Ephesus. Um, he's not going to see them again. He has every intention to go to Jerusalem and then sail all the way over to Greece because he's shared the gospel all over Europe. He wants to go. No, I'm sorry, Greece. I meant to say Spain. So he wants to go all the way to Spain. So he's going to make his way to Jerusalem. Why is he going to Jerusalem? You remember? He's got an offering. He's taken up an offering from the Gentile churches. There is a famine. There's, uh, the church in Jerusalem is poor now. So he's taking an offering from the Gentiles. How, how ironic. Gentile peoples donating to the Jerusalem church. Paul's got a bag of money. So he's going to make his way over there. Uh, as he does, he is warned over and over by people he, stop, he, he meets with. Don't go to Jerusalem. Jerusalem has always been a hotbed of persecution. It's where Jesus, of course, was condemned and crucified in Jerusalem. It's where the Sanhedrin killed James, who was the, uh, the, the first apostle to be killed. That's the brother of John, one of the sons of Zebedee. It's where Peter was imprisoned, although he came out scot-free in Acts 12. Then all the apostles uh, were eventually um, scattered out, never to preach. And they were told never to preach Jesus again in Jerusalem. It's where Stephen was martyred, uh, the first Christian martyr. Uh, It's where the Jewish, actually he precedes James being killed. Uh, The Jewish persecution of the church began. And it's where Saul of Tarsus was unleashed. Uh, who became Paul the Apostle, unleashed to go persecute more Christians. All planned and, uh, and schemed there in Jerusalem. It has been revealed to Paul at this point, through the Holy Spirit, that persecution awaited him in Jerusalem, and that he would be bound with ropes. We saw that last week. Agabus came and took Paul's belt, this, this wrap-around piece of fabric, and wrapped it around his arm, and said, this is how you will be treated when you get to Jerusalem. 
Remember, we talked about that last week where the Spirit of God seemed to be telling Paul to go to Jerusalem, but the Spirit of God was telling the other people not to tell him not to go to Jerusalem. But he wasn't. Spirit of God doesn't tell one person one thing and another person another thing, does he? It's not schizoid. The Spirit of God was simply telling Paul, reminding Paul, you're going to be persecuted. But the people interpreted it because Paul's going to be persecuted. That means you're not supposed to go there. Paul said, stop breaking my heart. I'm willing to go to Jerusalem and die if that's what I have to do, but I'm going. That's a great attitude to have in ministry. Uh, in fulfillment of Agabus's prophecy, it's where Paul was indeed imprisoned. When he gets there, we'll look at that tonight. He was imprisoned. The people will end up demanding his death. Uh, and concluding with the secret plot under oath of more than 40 men to murder him. What has he done? What is Paul's big problem? Let's take a look. We're in Acts 21. We left off in, in, in verse 14 last week. It says in first, first, verse 14, he would not be persuaded. Paul says, or Luke says, we all fell silent. Not be persuaded to not go to Jerusalem. He's going to Jerusalem. Verse 15, after these days we got ready and started our way up to Jerusalem. You can still hear Luke speaking in the first person. He's with them, we. Some of the disciples from Caesarea also came with a Caesarea. That's Caesarea Maritime right there on the, on the coast of the Mediterranean Sea. Some of the disciples from Caesarea also came with us, taking with us uh, to Manasseh of Cyprus, a disciple of long standing of whom we were to lodge. We don't know anything about him of, other than he's been a disciple for a long time. Maybe he came to know Christ during the days of Christ. Um, after we arrived in Jerusalem, by the way, this is 15 to 17, 18 years later after the crucifixion, resurrection of Christ. Verse 17, Luke says, after we arrived in Jerusalem, the brethren received us gladly. There's many Christians in Jerusalem. In fact, back in Acts chapter 5, we had counted upward of 20,000 people that had come to know Christ at this point. We read about 5,000 men if they were married. Uh, that's 10,000. We had read of 3,000 prior, a few other. Looks like the church was keeping tabs on everyone who was coming to know Christ early on. And now the numbers are just so large, we'll see that they're not really keeping the numbers per se. But the brethren there, that's the Christians, received us gladly. Now, no wonder they received us gladly. Paul's got a bag of money. Who's not receiving that guy? Everybody's a friend of that guy. He's got the money. Nothing is said about the distribution of the money. And we, we assume that they were happy just to see Paul anyway. And the following day, Paul went in with us to James and to all the elders who were present. Now, you may have come across this over the course of your life in church. You may have never heard it. But the, one of the discussions that has been for millennia is Paul versus James. Salvation by grace alone or salvation supposedly by works, as James says. So let's take a look at what this looks like. The Apostle Paul says this in Romans 3, 23 to 31. I've even shortened it, even though it takes up the whole slide. Paul says, all of sin falls short of the glory of God, being justified as a gift by his grace. This is what Paul is teaching. Through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation or a satisfaction in his blood through faith. This was to demonstrate his righteousness, because in the forbearance of God, he passed over the sins previously committed for the demonstration, I say, of his righteousness at the present time, so that he would be the just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. And I've highlighted this, obviously, for we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from works of the law. This is what Paul says. This is Paul's theology. In Galatians 2.16, he says, likewise, 
knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but through faith in Christ Jesus. Even we have believed in Christ Jesus, so that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. That would be the Mosaic law. You can't do the works of the law and be justified. You can't do the works of the Mosaic law and have God say, okay, good for you. Now you're saved. We're saved by God's grace, not works of the law. That's all Paul is saying. James says this in his epistle, beginning in chapter 2, verse 14. What use is it, my brethren, if someone says he has faith, but he has no works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is without clothing and in need of daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and be filled, and yet you do not give them what is necessary for their body, what use is that? Even so, faith, if it has no works, is dead, being by itself. You see where Paul spoke? And now where James says? James goes on. Someone may well say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without the works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one, you do well. The demons also believe and shudder. But are you willing to recognize, you foolish fellow, that faith without works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up Isaac, his son, on the altar? You see that faith was working with his works. And as a result of the works, faith was perfected. And the scripture was fulfilled, which says, And Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. That's Genesis fifteen six. And he was called the friend of God. You see that a man is justified by works and not by faith alone. Huh. In the same way, was not Rahab the harlot also justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? For just as the body without the spirit is dead, so also faith without works is dead. Now, some have gone, come along and said these men are contradicting each other. Paul says no works. James says absolutely works. Folks, they are saying the exact same thing. Paul is not against James. And I, want to, I bring that up to let you know if they were teaching contrary doctrines... Don't you think there'd be a clash when Paul came to town? Because this is James. This is the same James, the half-brother of Jesus, the pastor of the church in Jerusalem. Verse 19, after he had greeted them, this is Paul. First of all, let's go back to 18. And the following day, Paul went with us to James and all the elders were present. My guess is that the elders were plentiful because the church is so large. And after he had greeted them, he began to relate one by one the things which God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. And when they heard it, they pulled him aside and they said, Paul, we need to do some business. Your, your doctrine contradicts mine. Were you reading along and you thought, where's he going? Verse 20. That's, that's why you need to bring your Bible, because I like to pull those things on you. No, it says in verse 20, when they heard it, they began glorifying God. And they said to him, let's just stop there. They began glorifying God. There's no contradiction. You see, folks, when you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, that's one side of the coin. I've got a coin in my pocket. I'll illustrate it for you. One coin, right? On one side of the coin is faith alone in Jesus Christ alone. The other side of the coin is works that prove that your faith is real. Without works, there is no faith. If you just have works, you're not going to get faith. But if you have faith... Works will follow. I came home to a hotbed this past week. Someone is out there accusing me of preaching a gospel that says Lance believes in works salvation. Yeah. And it's because of what I just said. It's because I have to be true to James and to Paul and to Jesus. And it's interesting that Jesus is constantly saying, 
You want to be my disciple? Follow me. Drop everything you're doing. Take up your cross daily. Follow me. That's right. Pick up your cross day, which is what day? Sunday? Every day. Every day. There's a cost to following. Without works, James says, faith is dead. Anyone can say they have faith. He even says the demons have faith. They know that God is one and they shudder over this knowledge. True faith has works that follow. Now, I'm not saying anything the Bible doesn't say. That's reformed theology. If someone wants to go out and accuse me of saying that Lance believes in in works, I'm just preaching from the New Testament. When do I ever not open this Bible and preach through it? When have I ever said, now it says this, but here's what I really think. Never. You, You should fire me if I do that. The Bible adds works to salvation, not to get salvation. Salvation is done by faith alone in Christ alone. That's it. I believe, Lord. But if it's true, it bears fruit, does it not? Now, folks, just to educate you in case you don't know this, this is called lordship salvation. (gasps) What's that? And yes, John MacArthur adheres to it. Every reformed theologian of names you've never heard of adheres to it. So if you hate John MacArthur, you will think John MacArthur invented this. John Calvin invented this. Therefore, we hate that doctrine. And people do it every day. They would never want to adhere to what it actually says because it might put them on the same level as John MacArthur, heaven forbid. It's not about those people, folks. It's about what the gospel is. We just read it. Paul says, without works of the law, you're saved. And he's absolutely spot on, as if I need to judge Paul, right? We believe and we're saved by faith alone. Don't have to do anything to get it. But if we have it, it shows in our life, doesn't it? As it did with Abraham, as it did with Rahab the harlot, as it does with you. Without the works, can you prove salvation? Now, it's not for us to go around saying, you need more works, Brock. You need more works, John. Pointing the finger saying, I don't see enough works in you. We are not fruit inspectors. We are not to be that. Trying to be someone's Holy Spirit. That's up to God. But we do have a task, I believe, certainly I do as a pastor, to put people's salvation in question. Perhaps you're not a Christian. Perhaps without the works, you're acting like an idiot unbeliever, but you say you're a believer. That's hypocrisy at best. At worst, you're just saying something you don't believe in. At worst, you're just like the demons who know that Jesus is God. I know who you are, Jesus, the Holy One of God, but they don't abide by Him, which is interesting because they actually do obey Jesus when He tells them to do something. It's about whether or not your life is submitting to Jesus as Lord. Completely? Well, we're all in trouble if that's the case, right? But we see him as Lord. That's why it's called Lordship Salvation. We believe that Jesus is Lord, not just Savior. He's not just fire insurance. We bow our knee to him because he is Lord. And every day of our lives, we're becoming more and more convicted over our own sin. And offering him more glory for being the Lord that he is. And the fruit in our life is bearing witness to that. So James and Paul do not disagree with each other, as is evidenced by Paul's arrival there. Let me see what else I've got there. Yeah, right here, when Paul came to Jerusalem, where James was the pastor, James and the brethren, it says, received us gladly. Meeting with James and the elders, they began to share with one another all that God had done in the ministries, verse 19. 
James reminded Paul that thousands among the Jews had believed and were zealous for God's law. Note that. Verse 20, and when they heard it, this is Paul telling about with the Gentiles and all of his encounters with Gentile believers. When they heard it, they began glorifying God. And they said to him, that's the elders and James said to Paul, you see, brother, how many thousands there are among the Jews of those who have believed. So he's showing them, you've got all the Gentiles converts. Let me show you the other half of the equation. Jews also are believing. Thousands of them are believing. And note this, and they are all zealous for the law. So these are Jews that maybe they were fallen, maybe they weren't into the law before they got saved. But now they see the beauty of the Jewish, the Mosaic law. They've read Leviticus and Exodus and Deuteronomy. And they see the beauty of keeping the law, of keeping the, the, uh, the feasts, of going up to the temple and offering a sacrifice. Not because they think that that animal takes away their sins, but because that animal reminds them of the Lamb of God. It's okay to do that. And they are zealous for keeping the law. So note that there's a whole group of Jews that have come to know Christ. Previously, we saw back in chapter 15, they were so zealous they wanted all Gentiles to be circumcised. But that's been fixed. That's all over now. They're all very zealous for the law and they're trying to, they're striving to be good law keepers. That would make them very good citizens and good Jews. Verse 21, and they have been told about you. This is James still telling Paul. They've been told about you. They're zealous for the law and they've been told about you that you are teaching all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children, nor to walk according to the customs. This is what these people have been told. Is it true? Paul never said these things. It's interesting because we looked at a couple weeks ago, Paul himself took a Nazarite vow, didn't he? That's in Numbers chapter 6. Remember he had to go to Cancrea, have his hair cut. Then he was going to take that hair to Jerusalem. You have to offer the hair and then uh, three different sacrifices. That's keeping the law. Paul wanted to, remember I told you earlier, he wanted to get to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover. Couldn't make it, wanted to celebrate Pentecost. Later at some point in his ministry, he had Timothy circumcised for the Jews. Has Paul abandoned the law? Has Paul ever said, stop getting circumcised? Don't ever obey the law again. Never has he, yet the accusation is there. So very simply put, he's being falsely accused. It's what happens. James knows this isn't right. He knows it's, Paul has never said that. So he says in verse 22, what is to be done? They, that is all these converts who think that you're telling people to abandon the Mosaic law. They will certainly hear that you have come. Therefore, do what we tell you. Do this what we tell you. We have four men who are under a vow. Take them and purify yourself. We believe that the purification of Paul would be that he's been walking among Gentiles. A purification ritual would be for him seven days to bathe and seven days before he goes into the temple. Um, Purify yourself along with them, these four men who are under a vow. Pay their expenses so that they may shave their heads. That's probably, they too were probably under a a Nazarite vow. Nazarite vow meaning for his... um, a certain amount of time, you would decide not to drink wine, uh, go near a dead body. You're basically doing something that's difficult for you. It's a vow. It might be what we do today in fasting. Let your hair grow for a time. And when you're done with the vow, cut your hair, bathe, go offer the sacrifices, and move on with your life. That's what these men are doing. Paul has done it. And what James is suggesting is, look, go into the temple after you've purified yourself, and you're going to take these men in the, in the sight of everyone, and you're going to pay their vows. And everyone's going to know that you're not out there telling everybody to abandon the Mosaic Law. It's a good plan. Verse 25, but concerning the Gentiles who have believed, 
We wrote to them, having decided that they should abstain from meat sacrificed to idols, and from blood, and from what is strangled, and from, what, and from fornication. Now, Paul was in on that meeting. We read about that in Acts 15. So it's just trying to appease the Jews who have been told something wrong about you. Have you ever had something falsely stated about you, and you called the person, and you said, here's what really happened, and they go, oh, well, that makes sense. You ever had that experience? That's a good experience. You ever had the other experience where you try to tell people what really happened? Get the hand. Don't want to hear it. I know what I heard. I know what I believe. But that's not what happened. Doesn't matter. That's what I believe. Which one do you think is going to happen here? It wouldn't be in the Bible if it wasn't complicated, right? Verse 26, then Paul took them in. And the next day, purifying himself along with them, went into the temple Paul's a Jew. He can go into the temple, giving notice of the completion of the days of purification. So he's letting everybody know I've been purified until the sacrifice was offered for each one of them. So look on the overhead. James knew Paul's theology, knowing that he had been misunderstood by many. So he gave Paul an opportunity to show all that, that Paul had never stopped, that Paul had never stopped keeping the law. By teaching salvation by grace, some thought Paul wanted all and everyone to forsake the law of Moses, not to circumcise their boys according to the Jewish customs. Circumcision, as you know, was given back to Abraham long before the law of Moses came, because Abraham predates Moses, as a sign of God's eternal covenant with the Jewish people. This was for the Jewish males. It has to do with semen and the seed that comes through the male. And it's this promise that your seed will be blessed. Circumcision is that sign. It was an outward symbol of participating in God's covenant. So a family would have a, a young boy. Uh, you can't circumcise a, a girl. The boy has the seed to perpetuate the Jewish line. And so the boy would have the sign eight days after he was born, the sign of circumcision. And that brought that boy into the covenant of God through his parents. To refuse circumcision was to divorce oneself from God, and it would be done by the parents. Or if you grew up and, you, and you'd never got circumcised, and you said, I don't want to be circumcised, it's essentially, essentially saying, I don't want to be a part of God's covenant. Faithful Jews were given access to all the rights and privileges in Jewish society. Unfaithful ones were not. Some reason that circumcision itself was the way of salvation, even in the church. Some believe that, okay, as long as my boy is circumcised, and as long as that boy grows up and he knows he's circumcised, he's in. Jews believe that today. I'm a Jew. I'm circumcised. I'm in with Abraham. I'm saved. That's why they didn't like Jesus' teaching or Paul's teaching, telling them they had to do something else, have faith in the Messiah. Though the church agreed that Gentiles should not be required to submit to circumcision, we saw that fix in Acts 15, Jews were not forbidden to circumcise, a practice that predated the law of Moses. In fact, Paul never objected to circumcision. Note this, unless someone viewed it as a means of salvation. The very fact that he circumcised Timothy reveals this in chapter 16, verse 3. Note this, he says to the Corinthians, Was any man called when he was already circumcised? He is not to become uncircumcised. Has anyone been called in uncircumcision? He is not to be circumcised. Circumcision is nothing. And uncircumcision is nothing. What matters is the keeping of the commandments of God. Two commandments of God, love God, love others, right? That's what matters. Where people or the Corinthians were asking, should I be circumcised? Should I be uncircumcised? That doesn't mean anything, he's saying. That's a fleshly thing. He's not putting it down per se. He's just saying, what difference does that make? It matters what you do with your heart. So that's Paul's view of circumcision. So in order to exonerate Paul and for the unity of the church in Jerusalem... 
Paul would in Jerusalem publicly observe the tenets of the law of Moses as it related to the Nazarite vows. The men had to have their head shaved, so we believe it's the Nazarite vows. Which at the end of the vow, sacrifice will be offered. So this is going to cost Paul a pretty penny. And if you're Paul and he's saying, okay, here's what you're going to do. You're going to pay the vows for these four guys. Paul's got to be going, oh, mama mia, do I have a cash for that? This costs a lot of money, a lot of animals. But Paul agrees to it. Here's what it would cost him. If you had just the vow yourself, you would offer one male lamb a year old without defect for a burnt offering, and one ewe lamb a year old without defect for a sin offering, and one ram without defect for a peace offering, and a basket of unleavened cakes, of fine flour mixed with oil and unleavened wafers, spread with oil along with their grain offering and their drink offering. If you do a Nazarite vow, that's what you do. Paul would pay the vows of four men enough food for over 400 people. When you multiply that times four. A statement that would certainly exonerate him among his fellow Jews, both the believing and the unbelieving. There's a feast. Who's giving it? The Apostle Paul. The old Saul of Tarsus. Oh, I thought he abandoned the law. Apparently he didn't. He's paying people's vows. If he abandoned the law, he would have said, I'm not doing that. That's worthless. But Paul is obeying the law. And he's showing people, according to James, here's how we're going to fix this problem. If only it would have worked. Now, I'll tell you why I have that on the overhead if we move on. Verse 27. When the seven days were almost over, the Jews from Asia, that would be Ephesus, because that's where Asia is, upon seeing him, that is Paul in the temple, began to stir up the crowd and laid hands on him. Remember the last time the Ephesians saw Paul was in Acts chapter 19 when they chased him out of town and almost killed him because of the, the, uh, the accusation that he was ruining all the business of their, their goddess Artemis. So some from the temple, they had come in. These are Jews from Asia. They had come in for Pentecost. The, temp, the, the city is full of people. They began to stir up the crowd after they saw Paul. They laid hands on him. That means they arrested him. They grabbed him, crying out, Men of Israel, come to our aid. This is the man who preaches to all men everywhere against our people and the law of this place. And besides, he has even brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled this holy place. For they had previously seen Trophimus. We met Trophimus back in the past. He's from Ephesus. For they had previously seen Trophimus, who had come with Paul, the the Ephesian, in the city with Paul. And they supposed, note that, they supposed, we see Trophimus with Paul, that means Paul took this Gentile into the temple. They supposed, uh, I've lost my place. Thank you. They previously seen Trophimus, the Ephesian, in the city with him. And they supposed that Paul had brought him into the temple. Then all the city was provoked. Now Paul's in there, note, he's in there trying to show that he does obey the law. Guys from Ephesus say, there he is. They go grab him and in front of everyone start accusing him of not keeping the law. And look, this Trophimus guy that's with him, he brought him into the temple. They're just lying. Now here's a picture of the temple. Um, Well, you see it at the front here. This would be the east gate. Would walk straight into the temple. Um, If that's the east gate, then the one on the far side is what? The west, that's what's left of Herod's temple. This is Herod's temple. The temple itself is built by Zerubbabel, previously built by Solomon. All the fortifications around it was built by Herod the Great. So on the west side is a western wailing wall. Uh, many of us were just there. When you walk down the western wailing wall, what I have circled at the top there, you come out at the end to a place called the Fortress of Antonia. And this was a place that you can see it rose above the temple, Um, Some had accused Herod or thought that Herod, when he beautified the temple, uh, had built such a strong fortress that the Jews would go there, hide out, and it would become this this place of war and fortress. 
So in order to appease the Romans, uh, he refurbished an old garrison uh, that was over there on the, on the corner of the temple grounds and called it the Fortress of Antonia in honor of Mark Antony. Fortress of Antony. We were just there recently, and uh, there's remnants of it there. And that's where the Roman uh, garrison would have been. And that rose above a higher level than the temple. And so the Romans would think that, okay, Herod's got it taken care of. This is kind of a lookout tower to make sure there's peace within the temple area. Anyway, that's just, I put that up there just so you'll know. While these men cry out, he's taken this man into the, to the area of the Jews. Now, here's the next one I want to show you. And that is, on the left side, you see it says, Court of the Gentiles. I didn't bring my, my pointer. Court of the Gentiles, right there at the top. That Court of the Gentiles is as close as a Gentile could go. If they were a Christian or if they'd converted to Judaism one way or the other, that's as close as a Gentile could go. And what's been found in extra biblical, I should say, in archaeological um, finds are signs that used to point to Gentiles that would say things like no Gentiles beyond this point. Any Gentile who goes beyond this point has only himself to blame for the impending death he will receive. That's a quote uh, that, that was dug up. So there's this barrier for Gentiles. So Gentiles had to stay out there. You see, the more uh, the closer to the temple, the only the Jews could get there. So Paul is being arrested, and they're accusing him of bringing a Gentile closer than he should have been. Oh, man, let's arrest him and kill him. So again, verse 29, they had seen him there. Verse 30, then all the city was provoked, and the people rushed together. And taking hold of Paul, they dragged him out of the temple, and immediately the doors were shut. While they were seeking to kill him, a report came out from the commander of the Roman cohort that all Jerusalem was in confusion. Once he took some of the, some of the soldiers and the centurions and ran down to them. And when they saw the commander and the soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. So imagine that. This, here's Paul getting beat again. Is Agabus' prophecy coming to pass? Uh, all of that was true. The Spirit spoke rightly. And Paul knew what he was going to get. But he's gone in, stopped beating. And that means there's a continual beating of Paul. Not by one person. He's been arrested by a whole herd of people who've been misinformed about him. He's been beat and stoned before, and he came up out of it. But they stopped beating Paul when the Romans came along. And I want you to note that Luke always presents the Romans in the book of Acts in the most wonderful light. They're always pro-Christian. They're always against the Jews. And Paul, Luke is writing to a guy called, what's his name, Theophilus in the beginning. Probably a Roman uh, of some sort. But it, it seems, and even in Luke's gospel, how many times does Pilate find Jesus innocent? He's three times. I find nothing wrong with this man. The Romans were pretty much just pawns of the Jews to kill Jesus. But here's another uh, instance, and we see many of them in Acts, uh, where the Roman soldiers actually get a Christian out of, out of trouble. Verse 33. Then the commander came up and took hold of him, that's Paul, and ordered him to be bound with two chains. There's Agabus' prophecy again. And he began asking who he was and what he had done. Who are you? What'd you do? What's Paul? Nothing. I didn't do nothing. That's what we all say, right? But among the crowd, some were shouting one thing and some another. When he could not find out the facts because of the uproar, he ordered him to be brought into the barracks. When he got to the stairs, he was carried by the soldiers because of the violence of the mob. So this would be the stairs of the, of the fortress of Antonia, which I showed you earlier, right up here. Probably came down the steps. Um, brings about, gets Paul out of the midst of it. Verse 36, for the multitude of the people kept following them, shouting away with him. Now, speaks of an Egyptian. As Paul was about to be brought into the barracks, he said to the commander, may I say something to you? 
And he said, do you know Greek? Then you're not the Egyptian who some time ago stirred up the revolt that led to 4,000 men of the assassins. Assassins were the Sakari. They were men who carried these uh, daggers in their, in their coat pockets, short daggers. And they would come out and they would kill. They would slice and dice and they would escape into the crowd. The Sakari, the assassins. And this commander's asking him, you speak Greek? You're not that Egyptian, are you, of those assassins that came out of the wilderness? And this is just a little tidbit to add to your history here. Previously, um, Josephus tells of this, what had happened. Previously, there, there had been an Egyptian who was a false prophet who had gathered a small army on the Mount of Olives. The Mount of Olives is right near Jerusalem, promising to overtake the fortress of Antonia and then rule over Jerusalem. Uh, Josephus places this during the rule of the Roman procurator Marcus Antonius Felix. We'll meet Felix uh, in chapter 24 of, of Acts. Who met with his Roman soldiers while all the people assisted him in his attack upon them. Insomuch that when it came to a battle, the Egyptian ran away with few others while the greatest part of those that were with him were either destroyed or taken alive. So if you want to know if that's a historical remark, it actually is. And this guy uh, from the Romans is going, you speak Greek. Is that you? Are you that Egyptian? Obviously, the answer is no. Verse 39, Paul said, I'm a Jew of Tarsus in Cilicia, a citizen of no insignificant city. It wasn't normal for a Jew to be a, a citizen of Rome, but Paul was. I beg you, allow me to speak to the people. And we'll pick up verse 40 next week when we, when we hit that, because this speech runs right into chapter 22. So let me give some thoughts on, an, on this narrative. A lot of times in the narrative, as I've told you, narratives don't necessarily say, okay, here's a three points, and here's what you do, and, and here's the verbs that are, that are imperatives. Here's what you have to go do now. It's really just have to gather some information. This was easy, um, I think, at least for me, and I'm going to try to apply it to you. I certainly applied it to me a few times. Um, Ralph Waldo Emerson, you remember that guy? He said, to be great is to be misunderstood. So if you've ever been misunderstood, you are. Tell your spouse that. To be great is to be misunderstood. Paul was misunderstood. All of this hubbub because someone cited that he was telling people to disobey the Mosaic law. Did he? No. Should have been fixed with him saying, um, can I clarify? And everyone going, oh, well, that makes sense. Let's all live happily ever after. Elbert Hubbard said, the man who is anybody and who does anything is surely going to be criticized, vilified, and misunderstood. This is a part of the penalty for greatness, and every great man understands it, and understands, too, that it is no proof of greatness. The final proof of greatness lies in being, un being able to endure without resentment. So don't go off thinking you're great because people misunderstood you. That's not greatness in and of itself. Greatness in and of itself is being misunderstood and not letting it affect you. So, did that humble all of us? <laughs> Humbled me. That's why I put it up there. Hey, I must be great. I'm always misunderstood. I must be one of the greats. No, you're not. Because when I'm misunderstood, I'm full of resentment. I've even let some of that out today, have I not? I didn't like coming home, people. I don't want anyone accusing me of preaching a gospel of works. That infuriates me. I don't like anyone going off misquoting me. But when you open your mouth as much as I do... You're going to get misquoted, right? The less you speak, I guess the less great you are, right? <laughs> when misunderstood, do we get louder and louder to defend ourselves? Or do we remain silent and give the impression of conceding defeat? We don't want that. I don't want anybody thinking they got me. I got to bring it up. I got to let you know that I know. Maybe that person will somehow hear that I said it, and they'll know that Lance knows you said that about him, and he's not happy about it. 
I get louder and louder to my detriment. So I started reading pastoral commentaries on this passage. Usually I read academic ones so I can learn the text, but in narratives I find great relief in reading from previous pastors who are older and wiser than I, who have been through it, I find great comfort in men like John Stott, R.C. Sproul, Chuck Swindoll, men that have been there and done that for 50 plus years. Though Paul's sufferings were not redemptive like Christ's, both Jesus and Paul were rejected by their own and and arrested without cause and imprisoned. Isn't that interesting? They were unjustly accused and willfully misrepresented by false witnesses. They were slapped in the face in court. We'll see Paul slapped in chapter 23. The doomed victims of secret Jewish plots, both of them. Both of them were subjected to the noise of a frenzied mob screaming, away with him, or in Christ's case, what? Crucify him. Why? What is, even Pilate's going, why? What has he done? Both endured five trials. Jesus by Annas, the Sanhedrin. Herod Antipas, and twice by Pilate. Paul by the crowd, Sanhedrin. Herod Agrippa II, by the two procurators, Felix and Festus. I assume that Luke meant to, to parallel that, so I put it in there. So when folks already have it in for you, what do you do? What was Paul to do? I think Paul was a bit naive. Don't you? Paul, if, if Paul would have had the great wisdom that he would have had right before he died, he would have said, James, good idea, but it's going to be what it is. I'm not going to be able to appease these people. But we applaud him for trying. When they already have it in for you, they will rarely listen to your explanation. Now, as a church pastor, people leave, and I hear various things of why they leave, and I've heard it for 22 years at this church, 22 plus years at this church. Why'd they go? Well, I never said that. When we started recording everything, I would have, you know, my, everything I say is on a recording. And I was even able to go back and say, well, I didn't say that. Here's the recording. And one person told me one time, he said, I don't care what it says. I know what I heard. <laughs> even the recording wasn't changing anyone's mind. I told you about the guy who years ago at Denton Bible Church, I was preaching from a very difficult passage in Titus 2 about women being workers at home. I needed to get in and get out on that one. Get in, get out. That was the whole point. Get in, get out. And boy, they, they, they were the, it was the uh, husband and wife, and they were the older folks in our class. Good people, good friends, I hope. Um, but she took issue with it, and she let me have it. And, but she let me have it through her husband. And I said, what's up? And he said, well, you spend a little too much time on women being workers at home. I said, how much time? He said, like 12 minutes. Oh, man, that bad, because that's not in and out. Well, the class leader, one of, he said, here, Lance, here's the recording. Listen to it yourself. Two minutes, 38 seconds. <laughs> Two minutes, 38 seconds. Should have done it in 38 seconds, but it wasn't 12 minutes, but it seemed like 12 minutes. They rarely listen to your explanation. And I said, look, it's there. I didn't write it. If Paul says a woman should be worker at home, should I sit there and say, now, guys, ladies, that's not what it means. I got to deal with that thing. Even in a class full of working women, I've got to, I got to do something. Get in and get out. Have some sympathy. No, let's get him for saying what the Apostle Paul said. They rarely listen to explanation. And, and I tell you this, not to gripe, but just to know. If you know that people rarely listen, don't fight it. I'm speaking to me. I'm looking in the mirror. Lance, when are you going to get it? Thick-headed. Even if they're appeased by one accusation, they will always find something else for which to accuse. Okay, I can buy that. But all of this, yeah, that's got to be true. 
Accusers don't need true stories for which to make accusations. Just rumors or suggestions usually are plenty. Well, here's what I heard. Now, how many of you, let me, how many of you have heard something about a pastor at some point in your life? You're talking to somebody, you have them over for dinner, and you heard about a particular pastor. And these people were at this pastor's church, and, and he did something, and they're, they're griping about it. Oh, he did this. You wouldn't believe how bad he is. And you never met that pastor, but that's what you think of that pastor. Yeah. Or a neighbor. It doesn't have to be a pastor. And maybe along the way, you decided to go to that church anyway and see what that pastor was like. Or visit with the neighbor you'd heard so many horrible things about. And you thought, ah, shame on me. None of that was true. <laughs> we had a terrible time here years ago. And this horrible Google review was written about me. It was about five, six paragraphs long. And man, somebody had a good time at my expense. And they posted it on Google. George Dawes, who's not here tonight, George said, I got to come to a church where that pastor is that bad. <laughs> so he visited, and I, I'm visiting with him. Hey, you know, I'm Lance Wallace. Well, George Dawes said, well, what brings you here? He goes, that Google review. I want to see if you're anything like that. <laughs> uh, thankfully, he realized I wasn't, and we can't get rid of him. <laughs> and that's a good thing. So we've all been guilty of it. Oh, you don't, don't go to that guy's church. Don't talk to those people down the street. They're weird. And they're not. We get in our minds for, for things, things about people we hear. Things about thing, people that they misunderstood something. You find people that are, that are really good at that. They leave churches over and over and over. The people are bad. The, 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 the preacher's bad. He did this. He said that. Did he really? Because I say a lot of things that unless you're really with me the whole time, if you're not carrying me in context... I say some pretty crazy things out of context. And I know preaching for an hour on Wednesdays and Sundays, I see people come in and out. They're back. All right. They missed the last 20 minutes, but they're back. And so whatever I say after is out of context. They didn't hear it. Some of them will come up and say, I heard you say this. Okay. You heard me say that, but I was quoting Richard Dawkins. Oh, okay. That makes sense. Did you say this, this, that? I appreciate people that will come ask for clarification. Others hear what they hear and you can't change their mind. Believe me, if you've never experienced it, uh, ministry happens every day. Have to deal with it. It just is. So it was with Jesus, Paul, and so it will be with some or all of us. It will happen. It's happened before. It'll happen again. God help me if I don't grow wise and accustomed to it and just let it happen. It's not for me to fix or you. Ironically, Paul was accused of the same crimes for which he and the Jews had stoned Stephen, speaking against the holy place and the law. He, he participated in killing Stephen. For that, he didn't go interview Stephen. So Paul might think, you know what? I did it to Stephen. Here it comes on me. That innocent man died. Maybe I will too. When folks have a beef with us insofar as we are innocent of accusations, they are usually propelled by jealousy and I put an, should be a, a misguided need to destroy anyone that they are unable to control. That's sometimes what people want. The Jews wanted to control Paul. They didn't like what Paul was doing. When you're in leadership, there are people that want to control those in leadership. If they can't, it's jealousy that comes about. Let's get them. Let's change the narrative. It happens. And that's where slanderous things are said. One of the brilliant things that was done to me in the past was not blatantly outward things that were said, Lance did this and did that. It was the suggestion. It was the dropping of the suggestion and not saying anything. 
and the not saying anything spooked everybody at the church. Wow. Those people are covering for Lance because they're such buddies with Lance. They don't want to tell us what he really did, who they're protecting and we need to leave. Lance is dangerous. But that's what people can resort to. When it happens, how do you react? How does it go? As a, as a pastor in the 21st century, I, I'm, I'm arrogant to think that I've got to fix it. How many others has it happened to? It happened to Jesus. It happened to Paul. It happens to pastors, everyone I know. I called one of the pastor friends of mine, and, uh, um, or he called me in the, almost the middle of the night one time after he heard what had happened here. And he said, tell me what happened. I told him, he said, Lance, it's happened to me 34 times. 34 times. He's got them all counted. 34 times? I said, what do you do? He said, well, you stay, stay firm. He said, you lift a lot of weights, is what he told me. You pray about it. Don't speak ill of them. Just go on. That's, that's what happens to people who speak the word of God. Chuck Swindoll says this. He says, for all his wisdom, Paul suffered from the same naivete common to most decent, rational people. He couldn't imagine anyone not wanting to know the truth and then live by it. Paul had faced a misunderstanding within the church, but his confrontation with the temple leadership was a flat-out war of ideas and agendas that could not be abated. Spot on. So let's apply what happens when you get misunderstood. Now, this applies also to marriage, friendships, working relationships. and leadership, being misunderstood is inevitable. Always. And so if you're not in leadership, try to give your leader at, your, at work, church, wherever it might be, the benefit of the doubt. Just the benefit of the doubt. Learn something more, but the benefit of the doubt always, I always appreciate the benefit of the doubt. I'm not always right, but the benefit of the doubt is helpful. If you want to have a strong impact on the world and the church and cultivate meaningful relationships by being real and honest, I do. I've always wanted to do that. If you want to rise above the fray and do something great and worthwhile, here's the bad news you will be terribly and painfully misunderstood. I mean, that's why I got into ministry. I wanted to make a strong impact in the world and the church of Jesus Christ. I wanted to cultivate meaningful relationships, lifelong friendships. I wanted to be real and honest. Being real and honest is overrated, my friends. I have some people come up and they will say, hey, you're so real. Appreciate you being real. Others will come up and say, you need to tone that down. I think they're both right. You know, being too real I had one guy who told me recently, it was a great compliment. He said, we, he said, we found this church. He said, before we came to this church, he said, we thought we either had to find a church that was, that was theologically sound, uh, that, that in itself, or a church that was fun and, and had phony pastors. You know, they're just always smiling and putting on the phony face. And he said, it was a great compliment. He said, here you are, you're theologically sound and you guys have fun and you're real. That's pretty cool. No one's ever, ever said, you have fun. <laughs> I've never been accused of having fun. But this guy did. So if you want to do it, young guys, you want to go out there and do that, you will be terribly and painfully misunderstood. If you figure that out now, then you're 15 years ahead of where I was. Get it now. Don't be overzealous to fix misunderstandings. They are only fixable with folks who want to listen, and they are few. But there are a few. Let's sit down and talk. Explain yourself, okay? And they say, now I get it. We can either loudly defend ourselves, as I said earlier, quietly resolve to say nothing, which will bring great harboring bitterness within us, or we can speak our peace and leave everything to God. He knows. And if you're content to know that God knows, you've won the battle. I know that God knows. 
There are things even today said about me. There are people that have come here and they said, well, we heard some, we heard about you. What did you hear about me? There are people that accuse me of some of the theological things. Calvinism, I've talked about last year, you're a Calvinist. Well, what does that mean to you? Yes, I am a Calvinist, but if you would not lambaste me for that being bad, if you knew what that was, do you believe that salvation is by God's grace through faith alone? Calvinism. Do you believe that the word of God is God's word without error? Calvinism. Do you believe that God is sovereign, that every word of scripture is his word? Calvinism. Do you believe that God's salvation of our souls is done by his grace alone? Calvinism. That's Calvinistic doctrine. I, I can't apologize for that. I believe all of that and so much more and the greatness of that, young, of that man. He was a young man. He was in his early 50s when he died. Uh, he died of overwork. The man never laughed. Hopefully I'll get a few more years because I do laugh from time to time. God knows. People will accuse you. God knows. And if you are content to know that God knows, you've won the battle. One of the great songs that's impressed me, you may have never heard it. Uh, it, was, it was written back in the 80s. It was by Michael W. Smith. I'm not a big Michael W. Smith fan, but uh, he wrote a song called He Knows. I know there's other songs called He Knows, but the song hit me then, you know, as a young person and dealing with loneliness and, and dealing with just trying to be a Christian in the 1980s as a teenager and getting through all that garbage to get through. Uh, I loved the song because it was as if to say, when no one else gets you, God knows. He knows. I know that he knows. So if you know that God knows, the battle is won. You can rest. You can sleep at night. I think Paul had that. Uh, Paul got it. I think he was naive, but I think he got it after that. You and I, a lesson from this narrative, I think, is that. At least for me, it is. Lord, thank you for the time tonight and for each person gathered. I pray that as we have sat tonight listening for an hour of your word, uh, that we would be a little bit better, a lot better actually, when we leave, uh, having worshiped uh, by sitting and listening. Um, I pray that we would be uh, uh, wise to, to uh, the fact that preaching your word, sharing your word, just sharing the gospel out of love will bring great enemies, perhaps even death, certainly death in some countries. I pray that we would share it in love with the hope that people would believe it and leave it all in your hands. And if we are persecuted or hated or misunderstood, uh, that we would leave that to you, that we would not be discouraged, all the more encouraged to be counted as worthy to suffer as Christ suffered, as the great apostles suffered, simply for preaching the word of God. May we do so in love. And if we don't do it in love, Lord, may we not be heard saying anything. Which we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to a sermon by Dr. Lance Waldy, Senior Pastor of Harvest Bible Church in Cypress, Texas. 